when I was arrested, I made nearly every major newspaper in Texas. They were all running at me with guns drawn and, you know, get your hands up, get them higher. You know, I mean, you don't get your hands so high when you're down on your knees. <laughs> Went in there 194 and come out 26 pounds lighter. If I'd have stayed any longer, I'd have probably lost more weight. I also had a score to settle. The state of Texas had no right to take my son away from me like that. So I'd get out four feet of water with three and four foot waves hammering me in the back. And without all that weight in the backpack, they'd have knocked me over. They pulled a gun on us and I went back with my rifle was going to kill them. And, you know, it just shows you how much trouble you can get into. You know, what comes in part two is the redemption of my story. This is Charles Beatty, a.k.a. the Prince of Poachers. And you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I would have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all, getting on to today's episode. Y'all, today I have a bit of a different episode for y'all. Um, you know, normally on this podcast, I bring in men and women who are who you would consider to be champions of the outdoors and hunting and especially conservation. And I think anyone that's been listening to the podcast for a while knows how important conservation is to me. That's why some of y'all may be a little bit surprised by today's guest. Uh, today's guest is the one and only Charlie Beatty, AKA the Prince of Poachers. Charlie is one of the most successful poachers in the United States, in history, he uh, he's known for poaching over 116 trophy class whitetail deer, along with countless other animals down in Texas. Charlie, though, is Charles is a reformed poacher now. You know, he's got a very interesting story. And, you know, honestly, I thought Charlie was a, just a, an all around interesting guy and wanted to have him on. Wanted to talk a little bit more about his book and the new book he's got coming out um, and just, you know, hear some of his stories and hear his thoughts on why he originally did what he did and, you know, why, why he turned around and effectively while he got caught, he effectively turned himself in and confessed to all the crimes uh, he had committed. So I uh, 
Hope you all keep an open mind through this podcast. Hope I don't get too many angry emails. But y'all, without further ado, here's Charlie Beatty. Charlie, thanks so much for hopping on with me today, man. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, you and I, uh, you and I started talking when uh, when I originally reached out to have you on the podcast. You you sent out a copy of your book for me to read, and and uh, then I I proceeded to get severely sick and didn't, <laughs> didn't get a chance to read it for several weeks. Um, but I'm super glad to have you on. We've had a lot of chance to talk recently, and you know I. I want to start this out by first and foremost, you know, making it clear uh, when we say Prince of Poachers, it, it might even be more accurate to say the reformed Prince of Poachers. Would that be correct? That's correct. For over 23 years now, I've been retired. Yep. And and so because I don't want I don't want to go into this and have people think that we are glorifying the act of poaching that we are promoting it and telling people they should be going out and and poaching animals you are so you are you're no longer a poacher you have not uh you have not done that for quite a while now yeah, not since 1998 when i was finally tracked down and arrested that's when it all came to an end mm-hmm the next year, it became a felony here in Texas to do what I was doing. So it was clearly time to hang it up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so what what do you say to people that because I'm sure you get critics all the time, whether it's, you know, on Instagram or your Facebook page or people just reaching out. What do you say to people that say that, you know, you got off easy, you got off scot free for everything you did? Well, I can look at it like that, but, you know, I don't have any consolation for them. Uh, If they resent something that happened 23 to 44 years ago, I can't help them with that feeling, you know, but it's all in the past. And, and I, and I, and I question, because I've seen this comment pop up a couple of times, uh, people talking about your book where they've said, you know, Oh, I don't, I don't know about this guy. Uh, he, he did all of this stuff and now he's just trying to become famous, uh, famous off of breaking the law. What would you say to those people? Well, part one tells the story is it is what it is. It was what it was and it ain't what it ain't. And in part two, they're going to see the purpose behind the book. And it's my testimony for God that's coming in part two. That's going to make sense of it all. Right now, it's just an open target. A lot of people are taking shots at it. But when part two's out, no one will be able to question why I'm doing it and what the purpose of it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think people don't understand. You're not you're not trying to get get rich quick off of glorifying glorifying poaching. You're looking to share your story, and then you're looking to to share the the turnaround and your kind of redemption throughout this second book. And would that be an accurate description? That's correct. That's exactly what it's about. I've got an incredible testimony for God. I mean, it's supernatural. It's going to be shocking. And and the whole nation's going to know about it when it comes out because it's that shocking. It's that revealing. I've just experienced some things that few have ever experienced. And I'm going to tell about it. I'm, you know, I'm kind of first building a foundation by telling my story to that point. And when I open that up, if you think I'm getting shot at now, I'll be shot at more then. But <laughs> it, is, it is, it's the truth. You know, I'm going to be telling the truth. No one's going to be able to really deny it. They'll try, but they won't be able to prove that it didn't happen. Yeah. Now, now, without giving away too much of what's in the book, um, I, I, I want to talk about something. But I, one of the big things I like to talk about on my podcast a lot is public lands and the ability for anyone and everyone to go out and hunt, you know, pick up a tag and hunt wherever they like. And thing about Texas is uh, y'all don't have a lot of public lands. There's not very much opportunity there to hunt for someone unless you are able to get a club membership or rent a lease or you effectively need money to be able to go out and hunt and and again not excusing this but that's a lot of the impetus for what what started you on this path would that would that be correct is you 
you and your 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 father you joined a you joined a club and they effectively screwed you out of your ability to hunt even though you joined this private club yeah yeah when i was young i joined the american sportsman's club it had properties for you know the hunters the, the members to hunt nationwide but when we began to call at the first possible minute that you could reserve your reservations and all they had it all booked up 30 days in advance well i smelled fish right away and i thought this is just a big you know corporate big money donor private deal they're just ripping off all the little guys and so that soured my attitude but i went down to south texas to get a invite hunt on the king ranch with you know doing taxidermy work in exchange and None of that worked out. It was a political game down there. You couldn't even pay to hunt on the King Ranch. It was invitation only. So I wasn't up against just the cost. I was up against the politics. And I've come to a dead end on it. And then I met all the local outlaws in the big taxidermy shop where I went to work. And they, you know, taught me into jumping the fence. And once I started, it was just on. I was no turning back. I got addicted to rattling up them big deer. And I, you know, moved south of the county to the Kennedy Ranch about a year and a half later, started hunting down there under a big live oak canopy where it was a lot safer. After a real close call in that King Ranch, I, you know, I got surrounded by horse riders trying to round up cattle in a helicopter in the pasture. And that scared me out of the King Ranch. I didn't go back for more of that. I went south and I got safe under those live oaks and, and just felt right at home. And I got completely addicted to going in there and I'd stay, you know, lengths of time. I stayed, you know, a lot of week-long hunts, 11, 16-day hunt, 27-day hunts. I just went crazy about them big deer. I was totally addicted to it, and I didn't think it would ever quit or end. But then, you know, a short form of what happened next was I came to Fort Worth seven years into it, and my boss up here in Fort Worth got me talked into going to church. When he did, I got under conviction, and I ended up— you know, going to church six years, turned in all my deer, lived a completely different life. And strangely enough, I was a, you know, I'm a third generation preacher's son. My dad preached 10 years. My papa preached 54 years. And, you know, once I got in church, I thought, well, it's over. I'll never go back to poaching. But I had a backstabbing buddy seduce my wife into an affair behind my back. And on, when I found out about it, it was over. She's trying to leave the state of Texas and take our son. And I went through a world record Boone and Crockett divorce. Those details are coming in part two. <laughs> and then I get talked into going back to poaching by a police officer. I took him and then I took his partner. So two police officers back to back got it kicked off again and went on nine more years and 75 more big deer. And, you know, I was just neck deep in it again. And then I still, you know, didn't think it was going to end. I, I didn't know the law was fixing to change to a felony. And so I got caught that year before it turned into a felony and you know, I was kind of tired of it and looking for an excuse maybe to quit. And then that, that gave me my reason to quit because the very next year, you know, while I was on probation, then it turned into a felony in 1999 here in Texas to hunt without consent of landowner. And that just ended it. There was no thinking it over. Then it was over mm-hmm. and it's been over. Ever. And anybody with the right mind is not going to go risk a felony and lose their right to bear arms if they love to hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not threw in the towel. So there's a, there's a whole lot to unpack in there. And, and one thing, you know, and again, not excusing going out and, and poaching or anything, but um, I'm curious what you would think. Uh, you know, we have thousands and thousands of acres of public land, hundreds of thousands of acres, billions of acres of public land. And, if you had maybe been born somewhere else, say you weren't born in Texas, say you were born in Montana or Idaho or one of these places with these vast tracts of land where you can effectively take your tag and you can go out and hunt wherever you like. Do you think you would have been ended up on a different path if you had had access to all of that public land? Oh, yeah, I would have hunted legal. I tried to hunt legal to start with. But I tried some legal hunting after my boss got me in church. And you're putting your life on the line to go to this, what they call Type 2 East Texas Public Hunting in the Paper Company uh, land at Piney Woods, you know, hunting. And it was just madness. From the moment we drove up and got out of the vehicle, you could hear shots being fired all night long. And just a bunch of drunks camped out every 150, 200 yards up down that road. and the shooting continued nonstop every split second the entire first day I was there. 
I didn't even want to go back out in the woods. What happened was I went down along this creek three miles, rattled up an eight-point buck, and it wasn't quite to me yet. It was coming right to the rattle, and a guy shoots him right over the hill from me, and I peeked over the hill, and he goes, man, he was coming right to your rattle. He said, you rattled him up for me, and he said, I've never gutted a buck before. You loan me a knife, and I ended up gutting the buck for him and rinsed my hands off in a ditch along some flooded, boggy bayou country and went on down to a dead end at a cross fence that said hunting preserved no trespassing and i was looking at that sign and then i turned to walk away from it and this old man stepped out from behind that great big tree and he said that's right you better not come over here i got a gun well, i was pretty disgruntled already with all the shooting and everything i said oh man don't start talking tough to me i got a gun too and he goes well i'm sorry and i said yeah i ain't got time to hear about it so i walked up <laughs> to this heap. i started seeing a bunch of good sign and i said well i'm gonna rattle it was scrapes, rubs, and I got down and started rattling. And two guys come out of the thick edge there with their guns on their shoulders pointing right at me. And I said, hey, I'm over here. And they go, man, we thought you were two bucks fighting. I said, I know what you thought. <laughs> so I got off and went and ran into these five guys from Houston on four-wheelers on my way back to camp. And they were having a beer and smoking a joint, you know, went in Rome, did what the Romans do, and they passed the joint. And then they all started bragging on their little eight-point coal bucks they showed pictures of. And finally, they looked at me, and they said, and I was about 27 or eight years old then. And I'd kill 18 of the biggest deer anybody my age had ever thought of killing one in every shape they come in. And so finally, they looked at me after they bragged on all their little bucks, and they said, uh, what about you? And I said, what about me? And they said, you ever kill any big deer? And I said, Yeah. <laughs> Say I killed a few big deer. I said, I've shot them with double drops, double forks, double handlebars, 20 points, 25-inch spreads, massive horns. I said, I guess you could say I've killed one in about every shape they come in. And they looked at each other, and they were laughing like, this guy's a nut. And they said, you got any pictures? I said, no, I don't got any pictures. They said, hmm, where'd you kill them? I said, King Ranch, Kennedy Ranch. There used to be a big poacher down there. Really? You ain't got no pictures? I said, no. And I told them about rattling up that buck for that guy. They didn't believe that either. So they said, well, we'll give you a ride back. We think we know where your camp's at. And I said, all right. So we started out of there, and they hit this little tree down over the road on purpose and threw me off that four-wheeler. If I hadn't had my backpack on, it probably hurt me. And they winked at each other and were laughing. I'm oh, sorry. We didn't see that one. Yeah, well, carry, carry me on in. So they carried me on in, and they said, all right, we're going to go over here and check for tracks park right there to the last part of where your camp is. I said, yeah, I think you're right. It has to be. So I stopped to get a drink. They went up a ways and split up. It was, you know, three went one way, two came back another towards me. And, and uh, I could hear what they were saying at over 100 yards. And one of them said, oh, I forgot to tell you, um, we ran across that Suburban that those two guys were in, the one that shot the buck. And he hollered out, hey, there's that guy that rattled him up for me. He said, help me get him. He said, hey, man, thanks a lot. And they were all looking at each other <laughs> funny then. He's telling the truth about that. And, you know, so they split up and they start back past me. And one of them says, well, there goes that guy again. And uh, he said, you reckon he really killed all them big deer he says he did? And he said, hell no, that's the line that some bitch you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> <laughs> so they were from Houston. So, you know, them guys from Houston, when they get wind of my book and all, you know, they'll finally get to see I was telling the truth. And, and I've got pictures now, boys. So, you know, I'll buy the beer this time if we ever get together. <laughs> I can I can only imagine one of them just uh, going around online or on Facebook or something at one point and the, see, you know, see your picture, see you on the cover of the book. Be like, why does that guy look so damn familiar? <laughs> You know, I was, when I was arrested, I made nearly every major newspaper in Texas, and I had to look just like I did in those East Texas woods that day. So the Houston Chronicle had a picture of me, and that's where they were from. I would imagine back then in 98, they saw that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, but yeah, I imagine they've gotten wind of it. I didn't see them at the Texas Trophy Hunter show when we went down there once, but... Uh, you know, I could in the future. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, public land can definitely turn into a bit of a war zone. That's for sure. Especially during rifle season, especially uh, when it comes to, to opening day, get the uh, get the orange army coming out. And uh, suddenly a lot of bullets are flying through the air and not in a responsible fashion. And that is definitely. 
I, you know, I felt like I could lose my life. I didn't never go back to that East Texas hunting. Never. I'll never go back there. That's definitely one of the one of the reasons when I'm hunting public land, I love to go as deep as I can, (laughs) as deep as I physically can manage and time allows just to get away from, you know, the uh, and again, nothing wrong with anyone that can only hunt a weekend, whatever, but to get away from the weekend warriors that are just out and flinging lead at, at, you know, anything that moves before they're even checking on their shot or shooting over hills or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I won't be back in that situation. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, that's definitely not the first time you've been shot at while hunting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a strange thing when somebody pulls a gun on you. You know, I've had some of that happen in personal matters, and you know, it brings the crazy out in you. And that last one of the last hunts I recorded in part one. You know, I went down there to hunt the guy and ended up running with some old gals. And we got into a bunch of trouble. Had a fight in this front yard. And they pulled a gun on us. And I went back with my rifle. was going to kill them. And then the police walked the alley right by me. And, uh, you know, really dangerous, close situation. And I pulled out of there and got out of there. But, you know, I'd actually fired a shot through their house. That's why the police were called. And, you know, it just part of the story you need to read that one that, that's a true story no, nothing in my book is not true and you know it just shows you how much trouble you can get into <laughs> oh yeah we're all kept getting into trouble yeah that was definitely that was definitely a case of it was you and your buddy right that that went yeah. went down there yeah he's the one that got in the fight and it was over the girls and then you know some money that guy that lived there owed one of the bartenders in the it escalated real quick when they pulled a shotgun on us. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just need to read that story. It's a good one. <laughs> At oh, that yeah. point, something in my life needed to change because it got me thinking about where would I have went? What would have happened to me had I been killed? I didn't know. And that's when I started doing some soul searching. And that's why when my boss was trying to hit me up to go to church, I was open to it. I had I began to ponder eternity and my my mortality and that's that's how it led me to going to church. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be talking about that at length in part two. It'll it'll start out like that. And so, there's also been times uh, when you've been out on those hunts uh, where you've been you've had to lay low in the bushes while a couple of shotgun bursts have been coming from helicopters as well. Yeah, but that was predator roundups taking place while they were killing two birds with one stone and looking for me after hearing shots the day before. And so, you know, they knew I was there. And old Tom East, this old man that, that watched that property and owned it back then, you know, if he heard a shot or if one was reported to him, he'd come in there the next day with a, you know, predator roundup, bring five to seven helicopters and light it up. And, you know, you couldn't help but be in fear for your life because I think the closest shot fired was probably 150, 200 yards from me, but buckshot coming down through them, them, uh, the, the air under them helicopter blade just, poof, poof. I mm-hmm. mean, I couldn't think laying in that brush pile. If they saw my head, I had a big head of hair back then. I thought they're going to shoot it thinking it's a coon. So I kept <laughs> on the handfuls of leaves over my hair to cover it up. Every time they blow the leaves off my head, I'd cover my head back up with more leaves and sand. I mean, I was a nervous wreck. I did not want to be there that day. You know, that's one of my hunts I called nightmare hunt. But I'd killed them two deer the, the, the morning before, and they'd heard both those shots, and I'd heard a Jeep crank up and come near me. And so they knew I was there, and the very next morning they brought in the helicopters, and, you know, the sound that it made, I thought it was a bulldozer cranking it first. And they wound that big motor up to a high idle, and then when they wound it down, I heard the first stroke of those helicopter blades just shook, shook. Now we uh oh helicopter <laughs> I just had time to run dive in the brush pile and they put up five helicopters and the crazy part about that story was my buddy George wasn't hunting that day, he'd been working that night. He come in off a rig and he drove up seventy seven south and saw him pulling them in there. And he went to my girlfriend Betty's house and he said, Charlie hunting? She said, Well I ain't gonna say and he said, Well if he's hunting down there, he said he better get ready. He said, I just saw Tom East pull five helicopters into the lower Kennedy. So, you know, that was the ones after me. And I mean, he 
couldn't wait to talk to me and hear the story when I come out and I told him about it and he's laughing his ass off and he goes, I knew you were pinned down. I said, yeah, all day. <laughs> oh man. I can't. You know, I, shots fired that day, killing the predators and hogs and whatever they wanted to, you know, exterminate while they were there doing that. Because the rumor is they not only shot the hogs doing that, they'd shoot some of the nail guy and kill them back because there were so many of them. Tom East called them horse killers. He didn't mm-hmm. like the nail, you know, but uh, no telling what all they were doing all that shooting about. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Well, I'll tell you, you know, talking uh, talking about shooting those deer, shooting the nil guy, all that. So you you've taken in in your careers in outlaw, you took 160, 16, Sorry, I mispronounced yeah. one hundred and sixteen trophy class whitetail. We're talking like Boone and Crockett level whitetail. That doesn't in, that doesn't include all the other whitetail. That doesn't include the pronghorn antelope, the the nil guy, the the countless other animals, 116 though, trophy class whitetail. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it'd fill a pickup bed, three quarter ton truck bed. If you piled all the racks in there, but it took, you know, a span of 22 years to do that. You know, there was a six year break in the middle of that while I was going to church, but we took 41 out of there the first seven years. And when I went back to it, those last nine years, we brought out 75 more. And I'm sure the camp meet would almost equal that head <laughs> up all the long, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I may have topped that with camp meet. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and that's one of the wild things is, you know, for a lot of, a lot of my podcast listeners, we, uh, what we enjoy is, is those long backcountry hunts where you're spending three, five, ten days in the mountains and you know we've got all kinds of fancy equipment you know we've got high-end packs we've got you know high calorie snacks that we take along with us we've got all of this stuff you were basically rolling in rolling into these these ranches and when we talk ranches i mean how many acres would you say like the kennedy ranch ends up being it's a total of 440,000 acres. There's probably about 350,000 on that east side of the highway where I hunted. I've seen maps recently that revealed that thin strip north to south down through the western side of the county, and then it squares. There's a big chunk of property there. And uh, so there's more land there than I thought there was. I thought it was just a narrow strip north-south, but there's a big old squared-in chunk of it down there in the southwest corner of Kennedy County. And then there's more tanks below there. Yeah. So I think, you know, this ranch is is probably bigger than a lot of plots of public land that some people will hunt. And so you're going in here, you're going in here for five days, 10 days. I mean, I think what was, uh, what was it? Was it 27 days was your longest hunt down in there? Yeah. Yeah, I stayed 16-day hunt once and then broke that with a 27-day hunt. But I spent 10- and 12-day hunts up in Demick County up there where the Boone and Crockett's are really thick. And, and I never killed a book deer up there, but I saw two of them run off. And, I mean, it's tough for hunting up there. Those deer are smarter, and they come in down with heavy brush and wind you before they'll come into the rattle. And it's just tough to get a shot. 50% of it's rattling him up. The other half is getting a bullet in him. Those deer are smart over there in the brush. Mm-hmm. They're really tough. And I mean, you're going back in and you're doing this. You're not taking in these high calorie protein bars and like high end, super lightweight tents and, you know, super high end down sleeping bags. You're rolling in there with a pack, a tarp, uh, you know, uh, some pretty basic equipment and you're feeding yourself off of what you shoot that entire time while you're out there. Is that right? 
Yeah, I found that you know, all the canned goods, you know, everything canned didn't have the nutrition that you needed for that type of hunting. So eating fresh meat was the key. That made the difference. Then I could stay longer. I could, as long as I was eating heart and liver and underloins and backstrap and, you know, hog hams and, you know, that kept me, you know, on my game. I didn't feel like I was lagging anything and except for that 27-day hunt. I run out of all my oatmeal. You know, my Bisquick flour that I, you know, make pancakes with and flour my meat with and all my carbohydrates. I was taking instant mashed potatoes those last few years. That would really put something back in you at the end of the day to eat some, you know, hot uh, instant potatoes and all. I, I had this little Optimus 123 white gas stove. And, uh, you know, I could eat prime elephant with that and if i ever run a little breeze, i could render hog fat into grease and then you know there was no running out of grease i could still fry stuff mm-hmm. but at the end of that 27 day hunt i'd run out of everything and i wanted to stay another week and i couldn't i had to come out i just got too famished i lost 26 pounds in 27 days i weighed when i come out went in there 194 and come out 26 pounds lighter uh, you know, if I'd have stayed any longer, I'd have probably lost more weight, but I don't mm-hmm. see where it would have come up in my guts. I'd have lost all my internal fat, you know, reserve because I was just solid rock after 27 days. Yeah. You know, I, I, I killed myself trying to kill one of them monster bucks. There's 200 inch plus deer in that ranch. I never killed one. I saw one get away over 200, but, uh, you know, that's why they call it hunting and not killing. But yep. Yep. Well, in I think was it the twenty-seven day hunt? One of like one of my favorite parts. I just I forget which hunt it was though. Was it the twenty-seven day hunt where you were you had to, were drying your own jerky to no, that, to feed yourself? That part one's only got the six. No, it don't even have the sixteen day hunt. It's got an eleven day hunt. That eleven day hunt's when I had to you know dry out raw meat and just as soon as it got crusty with season all spice on it. You know, mm-hmm. I had to start eating. They were putting up air pressure. They had planes circling at night. And, you know, I knew if I fired, it'd be seen back then. I didn't have that little Optimus stove. If I cooked, I had to build a little fire. And you have to be real careful where you do that. But I knew I couldn't build one with them planes circling. They'd heard me shoot deep, you know, about 17 miles deep. And they were circling. And I, I could tell I could not build a fire. So during the daytime would have been an option. But even then, I didn't want to build a fire and have the smoke lead them to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I ate raw deer meat on that 11-day hunt for days. You know, just let it get crusty and start chewing it up. As soon as it got a little crusty on the edges, I'd eat it. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's some commitment right there. I'll give you that because you're, you know, we're talking again, you're carrying all this stuff in. It's not lightweight gear. I mean, I think at one point you talked about you you rolled in with a 100-pound pack, I want to say, on one of these hunts. I lost count how many times I'd go over the fence, over 130 or 40 pounds. And your pack would get light for a while, lighter, as days went by. And then it started getting heavier when you started tying <laughs> horns and seeds in it. <laughs> you come out there about the same you went in with. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, we're talking 100, 100, 120-pound pack. You're going in 17 miles because this isn't, you don't have the ability to just drive right through the gate and have somebody drop you off right there. Uh, you know, you're sneaking over the fence in the road or, you know, you're going, uh, I, uh, one of the properties you had your buddy that had the property kind of in the middle, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a, a friend of ours had this property that was seven and eight miles deep. And when we hunted from his place, we could do one or two day hunt and be driven out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I went back to it, I was on my own. He'd gotten murdered, and I, I didn't have access to that property anymore. So I would have to go all the way from the highway. I took a few boat rides across to Baffin Bay. That's actually what I did when I got caught was I took a boat ride. I'd been hunting up in the brush the whole season. I was pretty worn out, and I said, yeah, I better take the boat ride and go in. And then I'll just hunt my way out and walk. I was going to walk plumb out mm-hmm. when I got enough, and it was a setup. The game wardens knew I was going before I went. They had that guy talked into taking me and telling them where he dropped me off and all. And they were actually laying there waiting. And they missed their mark. They were further east by several miles. And they probably had me in a spot. But when I got out of the boat, 
But I waited in that last hundred yards when I'm with a gun over my head and a bag of clothes, and I'm convinced they were watching me from the the shore. The the bay was so rough, three four foot wind, you know, uh, waves that no one could on the boat on the on the bay in a boat, or you know, not for any length of time. I mean, you can get your boat could get sank, you know, in those kind of waves. And he even had to let me out a hundred yards from shore because of that. He said, I can't, he said, I'll get swamped on the beach. I can't go any closer. So I get out in four feet of water with three and four foot waves hammering me in the back. And without all that weight in the backpack, they'd have knocked me over. But I was able to go that last hundred yards, you know, in the water and then get to shore and change clothes pretty quick after I got two or 300 yards back in there in the brush. And, um, you know, they came down the beach in a truck shortly thereafter. And then the plane came down the beach and I already found a big deer and was fixed to kill him. I had to make a break and run for covering. And the deer spooked. There was, you know, that big one I was after and then five more in a swell that I'd encountered. Um, That's in part one. I put that final hunt, the rest and capture in part one just to give people some sense of conclusion to it. But there's so much more coming in those nine years after I went back to it Mm. that lead up to rest and capture but they tracked me 17 miles to the east and south and i walked a big loop looking for a big deer i'd missed that uh, second day and stayed in that area that third day trying to find that group of bucks and that's what let them catch up with me and get Mm -hmm. you know get close enough to me i mean even though they'd lost my trail they did stumble over me right at dark and so when they when they caught you in this in this part of the story they didn't they didn't actually catch you with any animals. No. They pretty much just got you for hunting without permission, correct? Yeah. If I would have been caught with the deer I missed the night before, they would have put a $20,000 restitution fee on that. There's no question about it. This buck was up there close to 190. He was 180-something buck easy. I mean, he had trash all over the top, forks, handlebars, big, heavy black horns, foot-long eye guards that wiggled, you know, just dick dastardly looking rack. And if I'd have hit him, I didn't allow enough for the wind. I knew I should have held on his hip at 300 yards. I just couldn't make myself do it. The wind was blowing over my shoulder more towards him than crosswind. And I I held about the last rib and the sand flew out in front of his neck as soon as I pulled the trigger and I knew I'd missed him immediately. And they broke and ran and he got in the wad and the, the other bucks with him. There's nine other bucks with him. They got all around him as they all ran off and I couldn't shoot again. I, I'd have just hit one of them other deer. So I said, I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And I'm gonna, it was right close to dark. I said, I'm going to just leave him alone, let him calm back down. And I'm going to find him tomorrow. And consequently, I stayed in that area that whole third day. And that's what allowed him to catch up with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had hid my trail for about 300 yards in this heavy brush and circled back and watched my back trail. And they'd been all underneath me there for two hours with no tracks to follow any further. And they were giving up. They were going to go back to the truck. They said, we're not going to get him. We're going to go back to the truck. It was almost dark. Sun was almost on the horizon. And they gathered, they regrouped after spreading out searching for tracks. And then they regrouped him when they topped the hill outside the brush to take the easy path. There I was when they topped the hill. I was less than 20 yards from them. And they just started hollering, There he is, right there. Get your hands up. And they started running wide open at me. And I turned around and looked up, and, and I was a wall of men. You know, there were seven game wardens in a ranch security, and they were all running at me with guns drawn and drawing guns. And, you know, get your hands up, get them higher. And, you know, I mean, you're going to get your hands so high when you're down on your knees. <laughs> Well, you know, didn't, uh, you know, you learned, you learned those woods pretty well as an outlaw. Didn't you end up having to guide the, the wardens back to their own truck? Yeah. In a sense, they, they, um, I think they could have hit this fence line about 200 yards north of there and known to take it back to the windmill and they'd have found their way out of there pretty easy, but they didn't know where their buddies were. And when they you know, had me listen, when those guys described where they were, I knew that fence line east, west, and then one goes off to the northwest. And I, they said, you know where they're talking about? And I said, yeah. He said, point to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I was handcuffed. So I took a step to my left to the northeast and pointed with my nose. And he goes, he looked at the air on his GPS and he said, he's pointing right at him. <laughs> he said, will you And I said, yeah. And he said, stay right there. The man knows where you're at. He's bringing us to you. So, you know, they kept wanting to stay out of the brush. And I said, y'all need to cut back. You're going the wrong way. And so we had to cut about a mile of heavy brush. And then they said, we got to be getting close. And I said, yeah, we're close. And they said, have him pop a shot. 
and they weren't another hundred yards from us on that fence line right where we were heading and they popped a shot and, and that game more than Mike Fain, he got excited having caught me, you know, and he'd been after me 20 years. Well, he mm-hmm. popped a shot right in my ear. I didn't appreciate that. I cut a dirty look at him, you know, and the other warden said, I don't think Charles appreciates you popping that shot in his ear, Mike. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, Charlie. And I thought, yeah, boosh, yeah, he's just trying to <laughs> But, you know, he just got so excited he couldn't contain himself. You know, he finally got me. In fact, the next year, a friend of mine was getting invited to hunt legal down there. And he was in that red barn at Rivera. And the game wardens came in, and they sitting there talking table away from him. And old Darren Bauckham overheard him, and he said, Mike Payne leaned back after he ate his breakfast. He said, well, he said, I've done it all. He said, I made a million dollars. I killed a Boone and Crockett deer. And I caught Charlie Beatty. He said, what else is it? <laughs> uh, you know, he kind of equated that with a million dollars and a Boone and Crockett deer he'd killed. But, you know, Mike passed away about four years later in brain cancer. And I wish he was still here to see what's come of me now. But, yeah, he's gone. But, you know, that was pretty funny when I heard that. Now, would you say that, you know, I I know you you love the horns. You love getting those those big bucks and you love that adventure. But would you say you had just about as much fun? You enjoyed it just about as much because of that rivalry you had with the wardens and Tom East and 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 all of them. Those kind of not not even not just being able to hunt the big animal, but also constantly trying you know pulling one over on those wardens yeah. uh you know on the guards on the the ranch hands all of that the rivalry you're describing went on in part two that's coming but that didn't happen until after my divorce i hunted for the love in that first seven years when i went back to it after that bad divorce and being locked up on her lies and losing custody of my son yes i had a vendetta against the state of texas not the game wardens when you see what happened to me in part two, everyone will understand. It became a, you know, revenge or retaliation thing as well as the hunting. I, I mean, the love of hunting restored me a lot from going through that hard time. But I also had a score to settle. The state of Texas had no right to take my son away from me like that. They locked me up for seven and a half weeks on her lies. They gave her a hundred percent restraining order against me. A bought off, paid off judge and a uh, corrupt notary public and lawyers. They stole custody of my son with 17 felonies, according to my attorney, after the after it all happened and blew over. I was very angry. I'm still very angry. What What's going to happen to finally let me let go of it completely is part two. I get to tell what happened and my side of the story. I get my vindication. That's coming in part two. I can't wait myself, but I've been in an 18-year battle with skin cancer, and I'm about over it. But I've still got some delays with it to to get part two complete and out there. But, you know, everybody's going to see what I'm talking about. And no one will blame me when they see what happened to me and what that evil person and her hypocrite church going parents pulled on me with their money. Everybody's going to understand then. That's also part of my testimony. But that's coming. There was, you know, no doubt that that was part of what motivated me at least the last nine years. You know, that was a big part of it. Now, this wasn't this wasn't Betty, was it? No, Betty was my old for four years, and she she just got so scared of it all. She she couldn't take it anymore, worrying what would happen to me while I was out there. And this, I actually became friends with the Justice of the Peace, Gary Bigger, in Clayburg County. And the reason the way I did, the way I met him, was Betty got to be real good friends with his wife Gloria. We'd go over and eat barbecue fish in their backyard. And Gary asked, he goes, Charlie, what are you going to do when they bring you before me? I said, I'm going to plead guilty. He said, I like that. He said, I'm going to lie on you as best I can. But he said, they bring these guys to me all the time with blood to their elbows, and they stand there and deny what they did. He said, I throw the book at them. But he said, if they bring me to you, I don't know what kind of deal I can make you. I'm going to probably have to hang. And I said, well, if they catch me, I hang. You know, he knew I wasn't going to stop at that point. But um, I got a speeding ticket going down there on that nail guy turned manhunt, that last one in part one. And I called him up, and he got a big kick out of me calling him. 
He said, well, where you been? What you been doing? I said, I've been living back in Fort Worth, but I come down to go on a hunt. And I said, your boy clocked me 10 over over there in front of selling these plants. And he goes, is that all you were doing? I said, yeah, he cut me a $35 money order and we'll call it even. <laughs> but he just came out of it. But, um, you know, he liked me. I mean, I'd tell him hunting stories in his backyard and he just loved it, you know. But um, it's just, it's a twisted thing when you see in the end you'll see how many different law enforcement people i was friends with i'm living on a ranch right now that belongs to a retired police officer and his wife was a police officer as well i mean i've had law enforcement friends my whole life and it's just been a mixture of you know the good and evil if you want to look at it that way and and people marvel at it they go how in the world have you known so many game wardens and cops and said well it come through my taxidermy you know yeah i met them and like me and we're friends that you know they like me in spite of what i was what i was doing and i never held them being cops and game wardens against them either you know i, I know some game wardens i like in fact i like all the game wardens that were in on my arrest i mean there was one old man there that that was real mad at me but you know the rest of them like me i like them and it's kind of sad they were like it's over now we don't have him to chase anymore mm-hmm. you know it's a dating thing I was going to say there, just from reading the book and the descriptions and everything, you know, they were, they, you know, they were doing their job. They were trying to, trying to catch you and you were breaking the law and that's what it was. And, and, but even in that, it was just kind of interesting because it seemed like there was a a sort of mutual respect, uh, you know, you for them for doing their jobs and and them for you for uh, honestly, for being so damn good at being bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, I told them that in the courthouse, they said, well, we're sorry about the way it was there at first, you know, with all them pistols stuck to my head. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. You boys, you're just doing your job. You know, it's like I said about old Tom East, you know, I was asked on another podcast that, you know, why did they use that much resources to go after a guy at that time for a misdemeanor? And I said, well, I'll tell you what the deal was. Tom East loved those deer. It wasn't about the the level of the crime. Tom East didn't want his own mother shooting one of them deer in there. I mean, he was considered Lord God Almighty down there in Kennedy County and another county. And um, he was, you know, in with King Ranch, too, real good friendship with them. And he was rich. Tom East could write a check for $200 million, and it'd be good. And so putting up five to seven helicopters, $500 an hour for each bird, it was nothing to him. That was pocket change. He just didn't want to see some outlaw going there and kill one of them giant bucks. He'd seen them out of helicopters all his life. He knew what he had. He didn't want to see an outlaw go in there and get one of them. The thought of it just drove him nuts. And, um, you know, he, he had a temper problem because when he was 60 years old, he got mad on a drilling site. They were cutting live oaks. He told them not to cut. And he just had a heart attack and fell over and died. And um, it was just a shame to see him, you know, that he's up with it but you know i love that ranch too i shared his passion i fell in love with that piece of planet earth i didn't want to you know hunt anywhere else go anywhere else i wanted to stay right there but he was my arch nemesis you know and if i was him if i owned it i'd have been in the helicopters chasing him too mm-hmm. you know i love that those deer just like he did but just i was on the other side of the fence i wanted to kill them all and mount their heads he didn't want anybody killing any of them mm-hmm. you know this buddy of mine named Pat Lane, he just come out with his book called Before the Stories Are Lost. He's got a historical account of those type ranchers, you know, down there in that day. He lived down there. He grew up down there. He knows all the details, and he's going to bring a lot of that to light and, and has in his little book. It's out now. But um, he understood. The story Pat told me one time that stood out for me about Tom East the most was he knew his, his uh, stepfather, Wayne Hornsby. And he went in their welding shop and was having him do some work. And he saw this pair of shed antlers that were plaque mounted up on the wall there. He said, where'd them come from? And and Wayne told him he didn't think it was a big deal. This foreman on Tom East's uh, property south of Kennedy County, he um, had given him those shed horns. And so he said, that's what I thought. I thought those come off my place. So he took them and he took them back to the foreman and fired him. And he pulled those sheds off that plaque mount they were screwed onto and threw them back out in the pasture where they came from. I mean, that's how crazy about it he was. He didn't want anybody taking shed antlers off the ground back there. 
It's just crazy how much he felt about it. You know, he's just hardlining. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I said, man, he was worse than I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it, that was, that was his job as well. And his job was to be as crazy as possible about those deer. Um, You know, I, it's interesting reading through that book. Um, I think he even said it at one, at one point in the book is, you know, Tom East and and the wardens, you know, to you guys, they were the bad guys. And, you know, it's like, it's like any book you read, you end up rooting for the protagonist in the book. And sometimes, you know, I caught, I would catch myself being like, Oh, I hope, I hope Charlie, Charlie gets that big buck. And I'm like, Damn it, Charlie! You're making me you're making me root for the outlaw here. <laughs> Everybody loves the outlaw, especially the women. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I, how'd you how'd you put it when we were talking before? You you didn't only poach deer. Yeah, <laughs> I poached many women too. Yeah, the the um, the outlaw. You know, like Waylon Jennings and what Willie Nelson saying that ladies love outlaws like the babies love stray dogs. You know. The women, when you're an outlaw like that, that's part of my life. You know, the, the women were like the deer. They just went with the territory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, you, you were talking earlier about Betty. Speaking of women, you were talking earlier about Betty and how she, you know, pretty much just got, just couldn't handle it anymore. Too scared. No. Worried about you getting caught all the time. Now, you know, you you had she you had some definite close calls you know that she had a right to be right to be afraid <laughs> i'd say yeah yeah the justice of the peace gary bigger's wife gloria told her she said look betty you're going down with him they know you're with him and you're helping him and dropping him off and picking him up and you're going down with him i just want you to know you need to get away from charlie because if he gets caught you're going to burn too you know, it was building the the pressure, the intensity was building, you know, year after year. In fact, me and Betty been caught on this antelope up you know, out of Fort Worth. We killed one up in the panhandle together. And the year following that, she was pulled over, dropping me off and coming back to try to pick me up. And that's what made her so nervous. She saw it, you know, the gap closing like this sooner or later, they're going to get us. And she was running scared at first. That was part of her infatuation with me. I mean, I taught her how to country dance in Arlington and took her down there with me. And, you know, Betty was madly in love with me. But part of her infatuation was she she liked to watch General Hospital. And she thought the world of Luke and Laura back in the General Hospital big days. Well, she found herself living out that fantasy that Luke and Laura lived in General Hospital soap opera, you know through me being with me and it was part of her her world became reality instead of fantasy and she loved it but then she got scared stiff and and one day she even talked me into going i said i'll i'll go one last time and then we'll get married and so that was a lie i just you know went made the seven day hunt and i come out without a deer I let a big one get away, but I crippled up going in and having to wade through a bunch of water going a different direction in. And, and the bottom line is when I came out, she wanted me to throw my backpack away, get rid of it, get rid of all the stuff I used. And, you know, as far as that went, as far as she was concerned, she wanted me to sell my gun, which wasn't going to happen. But, um, you know, she left me over it. She left me. She came back up to Fort Worth. And then I came back up to Fort Worth and ran into her, and she realized she loved me, you know, and we got back together for a short period of time. And she busted me with another girl, and that, that pretty much ended it. But, you know, she got, you know, in, enthralled, you might say, in our relationship at first, and then she got scared, and she wanted out. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of Luke and Laura, Bonnie, and Clyde deal for her at first. She loved going to the, the dances all the time. I mean, we danced perfect together. We just know had big times all the time but then she got scared to be around me the, the king ranch cowboys kept warning her in fact we broke up once and i left her down there and when i left her down there one of the king ranch foremans got engaged to her she got involved with one of them mm-hmm. his name was jk milam and they were fixing to get married when i came back that next fall <laughs> <laughs> and I broke up their engagement. I couldn't ever sleeping in the enemy's camp, you know, and all the King Ranch Cowboys were taking bets that, you know, 
she'd stay with him and blow me off. And all my buddies were taking bets that she'd jump the King Ranch for me and marry me again, go back to me. And so I couldn't resist. I had to back all my buddies up and they all won the bet. You're <laughs> 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 back out from under that King Ranch farm. And you know, like I say in the book, I knocked every one of them King Ranch cowboys out at the dance without ever throwing a punch. <laughs> 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 the great the great poacher of deer and the great poacher of women yeah yeah she was madly in love with me one look at me and one dance and she went to tears <laughs> <laughs> whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt at midwayusa.com we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So you did have your your fair share of close calls coming in, you know, whether it was, whether it was on the ranch, whether it was getting pulled over, whether it was... Uh, you know, just you. Hey, there's stories of the wardens following you for days at a time while you're down there. Yeah, and I wasn't the only one. My buddy George Moore, he got tracked 19 miles one time, and he he took a ride off of a well site from some well workers. And the game wardens, when they did catch him later, they said we followed a set of tracks one time 19 miles plumb to the next highway. <laughs> he knew it was him. He knew it was his tracks that they had followed and they said they just went up to this well site and disappeared. <laughs> I mean, those guys over there west and the brothers, they tracked you across the county. I mean, they had troops. They had a lot of pressure over there every year during deer season. You know, before, during and after they track you down late after season too. That's when I got caught. I got caught February the sixth. So there you have it. They weren't giving up. They knew I was probably going to make one last hunt or two, and then they were still set to try to catch me late in the year. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were fixed to start working fishermen, but, you know, they scheduled me in on that tip. That guy set me up. He was up on revocation of probation for testing positive for dope you know, while on parole, and they were going to revoke him. So he swung him a deal. He said, I think I can talk, uh, talk Charlie Beatty and let me bring him across the bay, and y'all catch him if you mm -hmm. go lighter on me. They did. They cut him a deal. And, you know, they let him loose before deer season the next year so he could be an informant again on other outlaws. You know, he was just a beach rat, alcoholic, drug addict, commercial and outlaw fisherman. So I, I do have one question on that on that trip when he took you across the bay, just at the before you got on the boat, you actually saw a warden that you knew before you were getting on the boat, right? I didn't know that guy, but he was four or five piers down from us, and he stared a hole in me while mm -hmm. I was carrying my back, one arm, my gun, the other. And, you know, I told this guy, Liberty, you know, when we started pulling out of the dock, I said, I didn't like the way that old man down there was staring at me. He knows something's up. He was wearing a jacket that looked plain clothes, and it was up covering his uniform. And he's sitting down in a boat, just barely sticking up above that dock and where he could see me. But he couldn't take his eyes off me. He was staring a hole in me. Mm -hmm. Well, it all made sense later. He was watching to make sure Liberty wasn't setting them up on a big, you know, goose chase. Yeah. He wanted to see me get in the boat. And he did. I mean, it was like this scene I saw in a movie where the feds were chasing this guy. I, I need to find out what movie that was. I'd like to watch it again. It was a great movie. But these feds were chasing this guy that was killing people. Him and a buddy were shotgun murdering people, you know, money launderers and everything else, some lawyers, crooked lawyers. And, and they've been committing murder all over, I believe, Vegas Arena or something. And uh, they finally catch up with the guy. And it was like, thank you, God. The look in their eyes was like, it's him. Well, that's the way that warden was looking at me. He was like, it's him. I'm looking at him. That was the first time he'd ever laid eyes on me. And he just couldn't keep from staring at me. He's just gawking. And so I knew something was up. And when I felt that pressure immediately, once I got on shore, I knew I'd been set up. I knew. I, I said, Liberty's in on. In fact, when I came out, I went and got Liberty in a headlock, just face planted him in the ground at a party. I said, you roll over on me, Liberty? And he goes, no, Charlie. I said, I find out you did. We're going to be right back here just like this again. You understand me? Of course, he ended up later getting stabbed to death in a drunk 
fight at a fruit stand, you know, a number of years later, but I found out about it. But he rolled over on me before he ever set me up to go with him. He had the whole thing planned out to save his own ass, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, it was a setup. Odds are, if um, they hadn't caught me with an informant like that, they never would have caught me. I mean, I was as good as you get at it. You know, and it's such a big place. That's why I got away with it so long. It was such a big place. I always tell people, I said, I was hunting from an equivalent from Fort Worth to Dallas, you know, 30 miles, it seemed like, but more like 22 or 23 miles east to west, and then that much north to south. So imagine trying to find one man in, a, in an area that big. And so that's what they were up against. And they had been trying to get me on the perimeters to no avail for all that time. And when they got, you know, the tip, that was what they needed to pick up my trail. And it just happened to have been raining for three days in a row right prior to me getting kicked out on shore. And so I was leaving bad tracks and I was constantly trying to bury my trail going through heavy brush. They'd just run circles around it, pick up my trail on the other side of these live oak mots and stuff. And then they'd stay on my trail that way. You know, but I run them in circles. It was funny. There was a little midget man, an old commercial fisherman too, old beach rat, and he had a scanner in his house. And all them outlaw drunks were sitting around there listening to him chase me over the scanner. That's what they did. They'd sit around, drink beer, and listen to the scanner. And he had seen me two or three nights before at this little bar there at a lot of beach at Sam's place, but he was sitting there just confused. He goes, I know every outlaw down here. He said, I still don't have a clue who it is that they're looking for. Who are they chasing? And so I got to this one spot of water after I made that big three-mile loop, came back after looking for that deer I'd missed all day that third day. And I just kind of stopped, leaned back, and took off running in about two feet of water for about 30 yards. And I just tippy-toed right on these clumps of clump grass and didn't hardly stir that clear water into a into a murk, you know. Mm-hmm. And when the game came to that spot, they stopped, and my tracks just ended in front of that 30-yard, probably 40, 50 yards long and about 30 yards across that water, about 18 inches to two foot of water. And they got on the scanner, and they said, this guy's a professional. The tracks lead right up to this water, and then they just stopped. And it looked like I'd walked on water. Well, that's what I'd done. And so when they said that, that little midget guy, old Charlie, we call him Papa Smurf, he stood up in the middle of the room and he said, that's Charlie Baby they're after. <laughs> he knew then who they were after. And then sure enough, when they bumped into me a couple hours later, then he was right. He heard him say my name over the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Charlie, I'll tell you, you know, you read through the book and, you know, you listen to the stories and it's an exciting life that 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 outlaw that outlaw life sounds pretty wild, pretty exciting. But what would you tell to someone, maybe maybe somebody younger that's that's looking to get into hunting and they read this book and they, you know, they hear your stories and they're like, oh, man, I want to I want to become an outlaw hunter. I want to become a poacher. What would you tell to someone like that? Yeah, it's not worth it. It's a good way to run your life. Like I just said on another podcast, if you get caught, you hang. I mean, Billy the Kid was right. There's many a slip points to cup in the lip. But if they catch you, you're going to hang. You're going to lose your right to bear arms legally. And, you know, you have a felony on It's going to affect your employment everywhere and everything else. And it's just not worth it. If you get caught, you're going to shit can your whole life. You know, you're going to go to prison. You're going to lose. If you're married, you're going to lose your wife, your your girlfriend, your kids, your your car, your truck, your boat. You're going to lose everything you got. They've got the law so tough now here in Texas. They take everything you had. You know, you lose it all. It's not worth that. I mean, other states are that tough also. Some of them, not all of them, but it's not worth it. I mean, I kind of say this. Enjoy my story kind of the thrills and you know enjoy that the excitement and all i had in some form of fantasy and then chalk it up it's it's over it's not worth going and trying to duplicate the life i lived it's not worth it anymore amen so on that if folks want to find you they can find you on instagram at uh, prince of poachers right well charles baby 330 on instagram my profile is 
all the deer. They can call me at, you know, my phone number is 817-648-8098. They can also Gmail me at 56charlesbeatty at gmail.com. I've got my website down right now. I'm trying to renovate a little office next to my house, and, you know, my printer and everything's down right now. But, you know, they can mail me a check, call me, tell me what they want, and I'll ship them right out. I've got the reprint now. And we're and you and I are working right now on getting your book up on on Amazon. So for for the impatient ones like me, if you want to get a copy, uh, a digital copy to read as well, we'll look at getting that done. I'm sure we'll make an announcement when that finally happens. And uh, yeah. so, any final words? Final words for folks before we uh, we sign off? Well, just stay tuned for part two before you make a judgment call on it, because. You know, what comes in part two is the the redemption of my story. And, it, you know, it's a good thing. It's it's not just a poacher bragging on his crime. Like I said before, you know, it was what it was. It is what it is. And it ain't what it ain't. It, it's not it's not something I approve of anymore at all. You know, I don't want to see some young men go out and get themselves in trouble. You know, so mm-hmm. I don't reckon anybody break the law for any reason. Certainly not felony. I always say, if you're going to risk a felony, go after an armored car full of three or four million cash, you know, <laughs> like it works. <laughs> um, one thing, one other thing I do want to call out is you've done a little bit of work with Operation Game Thief in Texas, haven't you? Well, that was sort of a satire, but, you know, I support. I support their efforts. I bought their shirt at a recent hunting show and put it on and, and posted some pictures in it. But you know, I, I want, I've made donations. I've donated books to this hunt veterans, hunts for handicapped children. I'm going to get into that more. I'd like to guide some handicapped hunters, I, you know, and I've, I've donated books for them to read. And I've said, you know, this is what not to do. This is yep. not the way to hunt. So, you know, learn the way to hunt legal. And stay out of trouble. It's not worth getting in trouble over. Yep. Well, I'll tell you that is something I've got. I've got some ideas for you, and so we'll have to. You know, we chat pretty often, so I'll make sure to to list out some of those ideas for you that I think uh, you would really enjoy, and I think would would be a great idea. But Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time, and I know you kind of have to drive out to the top of the hill to get reception, to be able to hop on these. So I appreciate you making the effort to, to come out and, and uh, record this episode with me. Yeah. My privilege. All right, y'all that'll do it for this episode of the wild initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at the wild get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Y'all it was great having Charlie on. He's if you can't tell, he's just a wild guy. It's super interesting to talk to. Uh, I hope you all will uh, take some time, go check out his book, keep an eye out for it coming out on Amazon. If you're looking for that digital ebook copy or feel free to hit up his website, give him a call to get your copy of uh, the Prince of Poachers. Y'all that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.